welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. Money at its core is just a tool, like every other tool we have access to. And yet it is such a ubiquitous force that it, that it stands in as a proxy for a lot of human needs, right? It stands in as a proxy in a lot, not just wealthy families, but families in general or pe- poor people in relationships where it stands in as a proxy for love or power or um, when there's hurt and sadness, like the way to make it better is, you know, a this, I'm gonna buy you a this or a that, or I'm gonna take you to a nice dinner. There are, when ultimately there's a human need that's trying to be tended to, but money becomes this thing that we use as a stand-in. And as a result, one of the, the things we don't have is really good language and understanding about our interpersonal relationship with money. Helping people solve that shortcoming, particularly for those younger generations and families of wealth and influence, is the unique focus of the work done by this week's guest, Kristen Keffler. As a leading practitioner of family wealth advising called Wealth360, she supports families of significant means in doing what she calls the inner work of money. It's not just about managing portfolios, but developing a healthy life identity around money. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This may be the most personal episode we've yet done from Warwick's perspective, given his history as the fifth-generation heir to a multi-billion-dollar media dynasty in his home nation of Australia. The ground he and Kepler cover here not only offers insights and action steps to families like the one Warwick was born into, but to any family that can benefit from shoring up its relationship to money and its relationships to each other. At the root of finding that health, Keffler explains, is understanding that the formation of personal identity separate from the numbers on a balance sheet is an important destination for all of us to find our way to. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for being here. We have on this podcast uh, discussions with people who've Every kind of crucible you can imagine, whether it's uh, physical challenges, victims of abuse, financial failure, every background. Um, and in most cases, I can say I try to empathize with the guests, but I haven't been through that particular crucible. Here, because Kristen uh, is a consultant and advisor to uh, families of generational wealth and the rising generation, this is something I actually, I don't know if I know something about it. I guess I do, but I've experienced it. I know this crucible. This crucible is me. So it was very personal, very exciting. Somehow, you know, this book filled me with hope. I mean, the fact that I'm actually vaguely functional, which I'm probably more than vaguely functional, is like, wow, I think I, that's- Indeed you that's, are. Indeed you are. That's quite an achievement <laughs> given my- uh, background of, you know, listeners all, all know this. Um, the, I'm, I'm the, I guess, the fifth generation, or I guess in the technical lingo, I'm a five, is it five? G5. G5. Thank you. G5. Exactly. Yep. Which we can unpack. Um, of a very large family media business in Australia. So, um, but, you know, and I hope, I, I can't think of, we'll unpack this, but Kristen, other than it being very personal, the thing that I came away with 
and I have three kids all in the rising generation, 32-year-old son, 28-year-old daughter, 25-year-old son. They're all exactly in the kind of folks. And, you know, you'll have to, when I say this, don't. this is not a put down at all. But I read your book and I said, I don't know that it would be that helpful to my kids because they don't need it. And not that... And that, That's good. And that it, it blew me away because, you know, they're very hard work. I don't need to tell them to work hard. They never got like expensive cars, not that we would have given it to them. It's just their work ethic. I mean, they're the kind of people that you want to employ them because they get it done. They're humble. They work hard. They contribute. Uh, they have a strong faith. One quick story, and then I'll let you talk here, so forgive me. Uh, but my youngest son, uh, Robbie, who's uh, sort of entry-level sales in Indiana where he went to college, uh, he had a car that we got him, and he wanted a car that worked more for the Indiana brutal winters. And it's like, yeah, you know, I found online like a, uh, you know, a used Mazda CX-5, and uh, I figured out I could get a better deal on it if I get it from this dealer in, in Minnesota than I could in Indiana. I mean, it blew me away that he would care that much about getting a good deal because people from wealthy families, they don't do stuff like that. It just, it was such a gift, not about the money, but his attitude. So anyway, I'll stop talking and just say, thank you for being here. And I love what you do. And um, let's start up the conversation this way, because what I love about you is that you're not just a practitioner, at least on some level, you do understand what your clients go through. And that is a game changing because clients feel heard. They feel seen, they feel understood. So talk a bit about why is that and how you got into coaching the next generation, a little bit about your family background that equips you or at least sparked an interest. Maybe that's a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that when I think about where I ended up in my work today, the, the idea that I, I had no idea something like this existed, someone who, you know, the idea of human capital or um, family enterprise consulting or family wealth consulting, like th- those terms didn't even exist in my mind when I was in my undergraduate, you know, getting a, a degree in human biology and chemistry. And in my undergrad, I was part of the work that I was doing was really around human peak performance. There wasn't a lot of like structured Courses at that time around coaching and really understanding human peak performance is sort of a field that was just starting to open up. Um, but that's always where my hunger has been is to try to understand like how do we how do we tap into the the greatest depth of our strengths to create an ex- an experience that is one based in like our our ability to flourish rather than really focusing on our ability to suffer. Right? How how deep can we suffer versus how how broad can we flourish in the midst of the chaos that life is? And that's where I, I that that's sort of my core wiring. And I really thought that I would follow a path that was um, I don't know something else. I got a master's in public health or and and business and and ultimately spent my twenties focused on doing uh, focusing on health and productivity management at the worksite, which was a perfect confluence of public health and systems thinking and behavior change and and business. Um, and I was happily doing that work while in my in my personal life, 
my dad, who had always been a, a successful intrapreneur, um, building businesses and side businesses, decided that he um, really wanted to go and do that, but you know, take his chops and and use them outside a business and actually build something that that was um, ultimately saleable, which is what he did. So he and my oldest brother, um, when I was getting ready to go to college, they were starting a business that um, that they funded, they got some outside capital. My dad remortgaged our, our family home. And like, he, he went to market with this idea that was, um, right idea, right time, you know, economic wins at their backs was kind of the mid nineties. Um, and ultimately by the time I was getting ready to graduate from college, they were getting ready to take the company public. So they, they did that. They had an IPO, um, they had a secondary public offering, some um, some months later, and then they ended up selling the company. And this all happened um, <clears throat> in a relatively short period of time, really. And so there was these series of wealth events that, for me, were were happening at a time that was very it was very a very tender time of like moving from from being an you know um, an emerging adult, sort of just trying to find my way into the world, and like what was I going to do for work and um, how did I identify myself? How did I think about, you know, earning money in my own right and really starting to think about how I was going to contribute? And and all of this was happening at this this time when, like, I was just trying to figure a lot of my own self out. And and ultimately, I think my identity experience through that was very different from my three older brothers, just because of the time of life that I was in versus the time of life that they were in and each of their relationship to my dad and the company and that kind of thing. What I will, what, so, but that's just the, the like backdrop to um, how I ended up here and in this role and the, this, the unique perspective that I bring um, is really fed in, in part because for my twenties, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out this landscape. There's both the inner landscape of the identity of experience of like, well, am I a kid from a wealthy family? How, how much is that me and not me? And how and how much is is that a part of how I think about things, making decisions about what neighborhood to live in and what house to buy? And and how much is it just outside of me and really part of my parents' narrative? And I have my own life to live. But there's these intersection points, right? That and and when we started having family meetings, which was something that was uh, that my dad started pretty early on where the estate attorney would come in and the financial advisor would come in and and he was really trying to help us understand you know how things were going to be structured and what was joint and and what was separate and and those kinds of things and I would say meeting after meeting after meeting I would show up like ready to like okay I'm gonna get this and I I got so frustrated because so often I did not understand what we were talking about. I didn't understand the language of trust and estates. I didn't really understand financial planning and like what tools you would use and the and the language there. And so there was this external learning that I was missing and no one was giving. And and then there was this internal experience of just trying to figure out like, well, what does it mean to me? And how did like is it good enough for me to just go get a job where I'm getting paid some salary? Or is that like in in the definition of success in my family's through my family's lens? Is that good enough? And so, my twenties were just a time of a lot of trying to understand and orient myself 
as an individual and as a part of a family that I really love and care about and my dad's story, which I'm really proud of, but is it's not my story, but parts of it impact me, right? So trying to understand all of that ultimately is what led me to the work that I do. It was me trying to figure it out and then realizing like there have got to be other rising gen. We didn't use that term back then. Um, that's that's more of a new vernacular, but um, there have to be other next gen family members who are as committed to understanding the, how to do this well, how to like engage with this effectively as I am. And, and we, there's got to be a way to shorten this learning curve about both the identity piece and also just the, you know, the nuts and bolts of what do you need to know to, to actually be a decision maker in this space. So I feel super fortunate that today where I, the work I get to do is something I feel very skilled at. Like, I feel like I, I bring some real a, a powerful set of tools around human peak performance and system family systems and positive psychology to really help my families that that uh, my client families and then i also get to bring this personal experience to the table so in that it i feel like it's a really safe space for individuals and families to like be real about the parts of being in a significant family that are difficult right? From the outside, it looks like it should all just be easy. Like you have money, you have privilege, you have you know status in your community. Like, what are you complaining about? And there's a lot of nuance packed into that, that I think needs a little bit of fresh air around it. Yeah. It's so well said. I want to kind of unpack here in a bit, just some of the elements in your book and just some of the things that you do with your clients. But before we go there, uh, it just sounded like you didn't grow up with like, multi-generational wealth when you were younger, your dad became successful as you were in college or just before. But there was one interesting incident. I think you were you got a scholarship to academic scholarship to go to college. Your dad was very proud. I'm sure your parents were proud. They said, well, money I'm saving on that. Uh, how about I get you a car? And you got it like a black sports car. But yet it felt like that was the first taste of a bit of confusion and feeling conflicted. So talk about that almost first taste of this whole new ex wealth experience was confusing and conflicting a bit. So talk about the story and why it felt a bit confusing and conflicting. For sure. Yeah, no, that, that was definitely a, a, a very momentous gift because, because it triggered a lot of things that I, I didn't understand really for years to come. Um, and I'll say, well, well, my dad's what the the more significant wealth events that happened in their wealth story happened later. My dad had you know always been a C level executive. He was a high earner, so I didn't have you know my 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 narrative around money growing up was. I mean, I, I honestly just didn't think of it at all. I didn't think it was like a non thing to me. I didn't worry about it. I didn't grasp for it. It was just like there was always more than enough, and we. And so I didn't think about that, but, but I was also the youngest. And so by the time I was getting to that stage of life where, you know, I was like in the story of the car, uh, my dad was a, was a very significant earner. And, and so I, I, in that, um, he, one of the things, you know, he, as you said, and the stories in my book, he had said to me like, Hey, you got the scholarship. I like, I'd like to buy you a car. It was a very, I was like, sweet. And so we started shopping and 
I got this black sports car that, you know, like this new car smell, like I got the really awesome radio, um, (laughs) had this moonroof, sunroof thing, like everything about it was just like, it was just a hot car for an 18 year old. And I'm not even a car person and wasn't a car person then, but I felt like I could feel, I can still viscerally feel what it felt like to get behind that little tight little wheel and this little stick shift. And then when I went to go drive to school, it was like in the last couple of weeks of my senior year, I had this moment where I was like, what, you know, the student parking lot, like there's a bunch of trashy cars in the student parking lot. And, but we weren't allowed to park in the teacher parking lot. And I decided I, it's a safer place for me to go take this new car. So I drove to the teacher parking lot. And then I had this incredibly sinking feeling when I looked around the parking lot and I was like, this is one of the nicest cars in the teacher's parking lot. And I sort of slunk into school and then, and then really spent a lot of time feeling um, in the, in those last couple of weeks of school, feeling very uncomfortable. And it was only upon reflection now with like the wiser mind that I have today that I realized that I was feeling a sense of shame, but I couldn't figure out what the shame was for. It was like, I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, but I felt a little wrong. I felt like I don't want anyone to know about this. And yet I was really, I I felt the joy of the gift my dad had given me. I could feel that from him, but I, I also worried about the projection of my classmates and, and the teachers at my school, the administrators at my school um, about like what it meant about me that I was now driving this black sports car to school. And, and it like, it really was, it took years for me to really understand what that car meant in terms of this tussle. It was very representative of a tussle inside me. So I want to kind of um, broaden this out a bit in terms of, um, and that's a good segue into your book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon. And I love that title because it's this idea that most people, you know, who don't have multi-generational wealth, whether it's multi-millionaires or billionaires, to think, oh, it's all gravy, it's all Disneyland, it's there's no worries, you know, uh, getting a job is not an issue, the family will pay you or you'll have a job in some nonprofit foundation or some, and the, if the business is big enough, there's got to be some corner of the empire where you can work and, you know, just have your own little right. uh, place in the sun. So it sounds like very idyllic, you know, the boats, the cars, the vacations, you know, uh, you know, go to the south of France or, you know, wherever your favorite uh, place is, is to go. But yeah, I mean, I guess one of the reasons that was fascinating is this podcast is called Beyond the Crucible. And this is a crucible we've never really spoken about, at least other than my own personal mm-hmm. story, but not more broadly. Mm-hmm. And you're obviously a subject matter expert, not just because of your own life, but just more, as if not more importantly, just the body of knowledge, uh, thought knowledge you bring to bear in your studies and research. So talk about just overall why there's this myth of the silver spoon and why certainly for that rising generations, 20-somethings, early 30s, why having wealth can often, maybe mostly, but very often be a crucible. Why can money be a crucible especially for young people of, you know, multi-generation wealth? Yeah, I think, you know, I think to find my way into answering that question, I want to, the the place to start, I think, is actually broadening the lens because one of the reasons, well, first of all, I, 
I feel like it's really important to say that I have never had a single rising gen client that I either in, a, in one of my client families or someone that I'm coaching individually who doesn't recognize the power of their privilege, right? This isn't like the, any one of them would cringe at the idea that I might be painting them as like poor little rich girl or poor little rich boy, look how hard this is. So I want to be really clear that like that's every one of them recognizes that they they were born on third base, right? They have this sense of like, yeah, I've been given so much, which is why it's even more painful to them when, when they feel like, and I cannot figure out my life. Like, why am I so stuck? And I think that there's there's probably there's a lot of factors that that create that circumstance. But the one of the ones I think is really interesting um, and broadly applicable is that we have a we culturally have a very conflicted relationship with money and we definitely have a conflicted relationship with wealth so like money being like i think about money as the more tangible um transactional uh you know you can like it's sort of human scale money's more human scale you can buy coffee with it and go to the grocery store with it um and wealth is an abstraction right it's like big numbers on a page that it's like, you know, it goes up, it goes down, you have this sense, but it's like, it's, it really is an abstract concept. It's not kind of a tangible daily um, uh, concept. And, and we collectively across the economic continuum are very, have a very subconscious conflicted relationship with, with money and with wealth. And, you know, there's lots of roots that we could, we could go into and look at historically and sociologically, like how, why, and how, but it really, I think where we are today is like there is a, a tussle where money, like money at its core is just a tool, like every other tool we have access to. And yet it is such a ubiquitous force that it that it stands in as a proxy for a lot of human needs, right? It stands in as a proxy in a lot, not just wealthy families, but families in general or pe poor people in relationships where it stands in as a proxy for love or power or um, when there's hurt and sadness, like the, the, the way to make it better is, you know, a this, I'm going to buy you a this or a that, or I'm going to take you to a nice dinner. There are when ultimately there's a human need that's trying to be tended to, but money becomes this thing that we use as a stand-in. And as a result, one of the, the things we don't have is really good language and understanding about our interpersonal relationship with money. What's our money story? How does it play out? How do you feel like if you had to describe money as a friend, what kind of friend would it be to you? Is it the kind of friend you would actually like pick to hang out with? And you think is like, no, that, that one's got my back. Or is it a little fickle and a little, you know, like a little fleeting? So I think that's like the the broader lens around this is that we we have a we have a difficult relationship with money collectively. And then we, as it relates to wealth, we have, and, and people who hold wealth, we have this kind of binary way of thinking about it where uh, through one, you know, it, both a sense of envy, like must be nice. Like I would like that. And then also this sense of disdain or resentment and like, oh, you know, we paint a broad brush We of like wealthy people are, whatever fill in the blank, right? It's something generally not good. 
And I think that because of that, that uh, sort of teeter totter of, of envy and disdain, and particularly disdain in, in our culture, um, you know, in a, generally in a capitalistic culture, we will hold up wealth creators because that's that those are people who are doing something, right? Even if even if we have a little uh, curiosity or disdain about the how they're doing it and whether it's go- based in goodness, but we will hold up wealth creators. But wealth inheritors are quickly discounted. What I think is really interesting is they're just born into a circumstance that just is what they were born into, right? Like you have the lived experience of that. It's not a choice. And and it doesn't mean that it's that it's something that they should say like, well, I want none of that. But it also means that that as an, an inheritor, as a rising gen, you're sort of absorbing the projections of the of the culture around you. And and I find that very often those um, inheritors internalize the message that like somehow I'm not good enough. And then you add to that what it is like to be raised in the shadow of a big thinking wealth creator, someone who's doing, you know, whether it's a father or a mother or grandfather or grandmother, you know, wherever it is in the family lineage, there's somebody who has done something that few people are able to do, right? Like that Midas touch, the alchemy of turning turning lead into gold and, and like really creating something significant from that and try to like find your own bar of success in when the bar for success that you can touch, you can see is like so high that, that it's like, well, you know, sort of my story of like, I don't know, is it good enough just to go get a job? Like making a salary? Like I'm, I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at people in my family, my dad, my brother, who, you just went and took the company public. Like I'm never going to earn wealth like that. Work in a you know public health job. So I think that you know you you add what society's projections are onto what is a, can be a very complex family circumstance to try to find your own voice and your own path. And and in the midst of that, there's all these things that are like joint assets, right? So where somebody typically a, an emerging adult might just go like sort of take space from their family and differentiate and find their own identity. When you're, when you have a family where there's commonly held assets and you have to come back together to make decisions, or you're working with a trustee, like there's all this sort of binding back to the mothership that makes it really difficult to do the important work of differentiation. And so um, I'll pause because there's, there are many other (laughs) factors that create a, a uniquely, pressure-filled circumstance. And one of the things that I really intended to do in the book is to like open up the windows and let some air into some of that because from the outside, it looks like someone raised in that situation should have everything everything they want to need. And, and they do have everything, generally have everything that they need. But but oftentimes that sort of inner stuff isn't being tended to and their, their sense of self and identity and and deep close friendships, all of that feels more difficult to come by. There's not a lot of safe places for kids raised in this situation to actually acknowledge that they have some wounds as well. Yeah, I mean, it's so well said, Kristen, and it is going to be a little different because I guess I can 
as best I can help illustrate what you're saying and prove your thesis is true. <laughs> so um, yeah, everything you said makes sense. Uh, I remember something my grandmother said is something like being born in this wealthy Fairfax family, it's like having dessert. And so you have really mm -hmm. a duty to service and to the community. So in my case, you know, which made it, and listeners obviously familiar with this, but uh, that made it particularly challenging in is that this large family media business, which by the time I was around had newspapers, TV, radio, magazines, had the equivalent in Australia of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, the major opinion leaders. What made it particularly challenging, it wasn't just about the money, the influence that we had on the society was large. So it wasn't just about making money. It was like, you have a duty to the nation of Australia. That's what this is about, not so much the money. And so the pressure wasn't just to preserve family wealth. It's like, well, how do I play my part in helping my country, if you will? Yeah. Uh, to have a, you yeah. know, we had independent newspapers that didn't promote one party or the others. I mean, my dad was probably moderately conservative, but the, you know, the, the articles would attack uh, politicians. It didn't matter what party. It was truly an independent paper. Um, and, you know, it always has been. So all that's to say is, and you have this found, you know, the, the person with the business skills was my great, great grandfather five generations before. And by the time I came around, most of my family are more, I don't know, journalist types, the business genes had long since died out. Uh, so there was this sense of, you know, who am I without being a Fairfax? And, you know, in my case, yeah you had three knighthoods in a row, which is exceptionally rare. And they're all earned on their own right. There wasn't, you know, inherited. So my dad had the same name as me. He was Sir Warwick Fairfax. And then there was Sir James Oswald and before him, Sir James Redding. Now, I, I mean, I moved to America, so I didn't really do do much to accomplish that. So I'm not a knighthood. I broke, I, bro I don't really hand out knighthoods anymore in Australia. It's considered a bit too uh, royalist and you know it's just they don't you know they don't allow that anymore which is which is fine but the, just the sense of gosh I've got three knighthoods in a row and how am I going to live up to my father who was you know a great man had his flaws but you know I, you know I loved him very dearly and admired him greatly how to live up to you know to his uh, he was again more of a journalist philosopher if you will but uh, was a highly intelligent person wrote books on I don't know, comparative religion. It was you know, a fascinating guy. So yeah, that was sort of the pressure. And so in terms of as you're talking about money, I saw how my dad was married three times, my mother twice. I saw how money could be very damaging. And you know, you'd have we'd have parties mm -hmm. of prime ministers and presidents and Hollywood people. And there seemed a lot of fake people. So to me, I'm a person of strong faith and in the Bible, it says, you know, money is a root of all evil. I, I got to tell you, in my Bible, metaphorically, it says it is the root of all evil. That's not biblically accurate. But for me, I just saw money as something that, that destroys and damages. So that was my sort of relationship with money. I'm not a sackcloth and ashless kind of person. But um, yeah, it was just you have no right to your own life. You've got to, you know, uh, fight the good cause, prepare yourself. So um, if this was a biblical parable, I wasn't the prodigal son, I was the good son that stayed home. So I did my undergrad at Oxford, like some other relatives, worked on Wall Street, 
got my MBA at Harvard Business School. So I was one of these people, I'm going to show them I'm not some dilettante wastrel. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to, I'm going to be different than, than some in my family. So yeah, maybe a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I always wanted to prove myself to myself. So I don't know if I'm a classic case, but I'll pause here. But I think I fit a lot of the paradigms that you're going through. And um, mm-hmm. uh, the saving grace for me, we've lived in it. My wife's American who grew up in a more of a normal background. Her dad was an oral surgeon, which oral surgeons make a lot of d- decent money, but not at the level that my family did. <laughs> but um, fortunately, the name Fairfax, in terms of the Australian media thing, it means nothing here in America, which I love. I can be my own person. But all I have to say is a lot of what you're talking about is really true. It's just trying to find your sense of identity and who are you. And apart from the family business, it's real. So anyway, I don't know if any of that makes sense. I don't know if that fits your paradigm, (laughs) fortunately or unfortunately. So any comments or reflections on that? Yeah, well, I think what you're what you're naming is like it's it's the story arc for so many, right? Like you you have like lived to tell the tale on the other side of some really, I mean, yeah, like talk about crucible, right? Like that's like you have lived and and the work that you're doing now is so meaningful because it invites people to one recognize the depth of their resilience and two think about the value of their lives beyond whatever feels like that defining moment that, you know, the worst moment, your, your story arc is so common in the places I work. Right. And, and ultimately like you, you're even talking about, I was talking about uh, the importance of differentiation that, you know, that's a key developmental milestone usually happens sometimes in, in or sometime or in one's like late teens and early twenties. That's an important time to find yourself separate from your family. You had to move all the way to the U S decades later to like, to find that. Right. And to really fit it, to find the, like the space where Fairfax didn't mean something to where somebody wasn't projecting something onto you or holding on to the story of, of, your story that was like, wow, can I live beyond that? My, I, I was really struck by what you said about money being the root of all evil. And I feel like I, my feeling is that our relation, our ill-formed relationship with money is the root of, of is how it can become the root of evil. But when we actually have a really healthy relationship with it, which takes a lot of awareness and a lot of work. Money is an incredible lever, right? Like it it, it can be, it's it's one of the like honestly the core, like when I think about purpose in my work, there's two reasons that I do the work I do in the in the market that I work in. And one is that I feel that human thriving it is for all people. Right. So cross an economic demographic and I could have chosen any place on that on that uh, continuum to work. This happens to be the place because of my own story that I that I have found myself. And secondly, I believe so strongly in the power of concentrated capital as a lever. And we can use that. You know, there's there's governmental agencies and nonprofits and there's lots of ways that that capital can become concentrated for use. But I have not seen any um, agency 
work as fast and as effectively as an individual when there's a need. So an individual or a family, you know, think about what happened during the pandemic and how quickly the Gates Foundation and many, many other wealthy individuals were figuring out how to get the get testing out and get support out into their communities. And they were able to do that very quickly. So I, I won't take us too far off so, on, so. I, I'll step off my soapbox, but I do think that money is an incredible lever, but it's like our ability to be in right relationship with it that allows it to be such. And let me jump in at this moment as the, because I'm the guy who's a little bit on the, on the outskirts of this conversation. Um, I'm the son of a beat cop. Um, and um, he didn't make a whole lot of money. Uh, he did, however, he lived long enough. He lived to be 93, so he he worked 27 years and lived off his pension for 36. So he got wow. that part of it. He he leveraged that part of it right. <laughs> but one thing I want to make sure listeners understand as we're talking, even about you know families like Warwick's, uh, families like the people that Kristen works with. Um, what you're talking about, about money being a powerful lever, that goes across the spectrum of whatever amount of money you make, right? Um, you describe on your website, the work that you do is real, messy, powerful, clarifying, and momentum-inducing. And I think you would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that is for people who are who are in that high leverage wealth and people who are just going day by day trying to make it. That, those are true adjectives for money in any context or or at any level of accumulation, aren't they? Absolutely, Gary. I think that I think that our path to freedom, uh, personal freedom with wealth or with money is is like wherever you're at on that continuum, you you have to find you have to do the work to find the peace and the joy of, mm. of operating with money, right? Like so often there's a tussle. I know that I, I lived it in my version of it in my twenties. And um, we don't have the time for me to go into the story around that, but there, um, you know, we were not, I was not getting money from my parents in my twenties. That was not part of their plan. I, I mean, I obviously had a backstop if I needed it, but they were like, no, like you go, you go make your life happen. And which is what I was doing. And when I decided that I wanted to leave my good W-2 paying job and go and start the, you know, follow this, this dream of, of getting to work with enterprising families and rising gen, I spent a long, many, many months not earning. And I found what in that time, I found that there was, I had a really tense relationship with money. I was trying to control it at every you know, I, I was, I had like a death grip on my savings account and, and I wasn't trusting, I wasn't spending money based on my values. I wasn't allowing there to be, mm. to be celebration of what came in, even when it was like, I wanted it to be this big and it was this big. I wasn't allowing myself to really actually experience the, the joy of the currency, right? Like money as in motion. And ultimately like it was that getting to the place of of deciding that I was not going to live in pain around money anymore is where the breakthrough for me was. And it was like, it didn't matter that there was there was less and less and less in my savings account every single month at that point. I was I had created a specific ritual for how I was going to spend in alignment with my values. I was going to celebrate everything that came in and I was going to keep working hard and intelligently 
to make this dream happen. And I think we we all have that. And I, I don't want to discount the the people who are like truly scraping it by day to day. And I and 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 I and I still think that there is room for for that inner work that is messy and and you know takes you down to your knees at times. But the ability to move into a place of flow comes from like moving through that and into something more empowered. Yeah, that's that's so well said. I think as you talk about in your book, you've got to do the inner work to do the outer work. I mean, for you to be a contributing a member of society from a wealthy background and be able to give, as as you mentioned, the Gates family did in the pandemic, to be able to do those sorts of things, you know, if you don't have a foundation with the inner work, that tends not to happen. And certainly I found that uh, in my case. So I, I want to talk a bit about, obviously, with the rising generation, uh, just the whole identity is a huge issue, finding your place in the world, and certainly was for me, what helped is, you know, going to Oxford in England, you know, nobody knew much about Australia. And, you know, they almost joked about, okay, so you're a wealthy family in Australia. Some of the more pompous people would say, well, we think of Australians like convicts. So in terms of the social hierarchy, you've got the upper class, you know, the middle class, the lower class, and then convicts and Australians. So, okay, so you're a wealthy convict. Oh, great. Who cares? So great. I actually yeah. loved that. That was <laughs> a badge of honor, but a whole other story. Worked on, you know, Wall Street Harvard Business School. So all of those things enabled me to prove myself to myself. So that it gave me little drops of confidence that, you know, I could work hard and achieve things. And for me, the bigger issue wasn't so much about the money, although it was as listeners as know, after the two billion dollar takeover, after my dad died to restore the company, the ideals of the founder, that having failed, it was more you know, me being responsible for a 150-year-old family company going out of the family. That was really the, the the dagger in the heart that I had to deal with. Money is not being motivated. But I began to see, look, I don't have to achieve what John Fairfax, my great-great-grandfather did. I can form my own path because I'm a person of faith. I believe God loves us all unconditionally, be we rich, poor, or what have you. So I find my own path to contribution. And now I have a a much healthier attitude to money, but it took years to get there. I mean, I started off like, you know, I'd go drive into the executive parking lot at uh, John Fairfax Limited that had the Daimler's and Mercedes. I had my red Toyota Camry. You know, that was a badge of honor. I wasn't going to have a, I wasn't going to have the fancy car. I was inverse snobbery, if you will. <laughs> but gradually from there, the years went by, I got a Volvo and that was a little cringing about that. And then I said, okay, I think I can handle an Audi, which I drive now. It's not right or wrong, but you speak to me mm -hmm. 30 years ago, I still wouldn't buy an, you know, a Rolls or Ferrari. I'm not judging. That would be a step too far for me, rightly or wrongly. But so, you know, now I have a better attitude to money. But I'll pause from my story and just talk about how you connect the inner work to the outer work, how you work with the rising generation. You've got many case studies in your book to have a proper sense of identity and self-worth so that they can begin to be contributing members of society, either to some foundation, to their own work, and how you make that change, because it's 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 clearly not easy. Every yeah. family has its own challenges and dysfunctions and attitudes about money and control. Or how, What are some of the principles you use to change the inner work or the inner game 
so that they can be contributing members of society and use that wealth for positive purposes? Yeah, it, it's such a big question. Um, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we, could, we could we could do a day long we could do a day long course in that. Um, but I, I I think that what's important to a couple of pieces that are maybe important waypoints to talk about in this is that one the formation of individual identity is so fundamentally important for all people, right? Like that. The particularly the the 20s are a really important age generally where people build a lot of identity capital. And identity capital is like the it's like the experiences and the, you know, the it's the barista job and the the I worked in the mailroom and the um all the all the things that one does to help them sort of like get a sense of what they like and don't like and who are they and you know, if everybody in my family was a doctor, but I decided to go, I don't know, pursue painting, like, how does it feel to be like an outgroup of the family? And do I, can I find my voice and myself in that? And that is all about pushing on the edges of one's own bubble of self, right? Like how much is me and how much is my family and how do I define myself and how can I be both in relationship with my family and still stand as an individual? All people need to do that. That's not a that's not an affluent family thing or an affluent individual thing. But the thing that that wealth and a significant family name can do is start to create more noise in that system when you're trying to find your identity. And so things that often happen, I, I often will hear family members say, um, particularly if they have a last name that's like on a building, the name of a company in their community, and they will say, I just, I want to move as far away as I can. I want to, I want to go someplace where no one knows what a XYZ family member, like they don't know that name. It means nothing to them. So I can just be me. And that I think is actually a really healthy part of of identity formation, particularly if then one can come back and hold their own in the midst of, of the bigness of their name. So I think one waypoint is this recognition that the formation of, of self, of identity capital is so important. And then, and then second is to recognize that wealth and a significant family name can create noise in that system. So then third is um, ultimately in the book, what I, what I did was take what I do in my coaching work and try to define it in a way that someone could work through a process of on their own so that they could actually do some of this without needing to, to you know, be on a phone call with me or someone like me. And, and so I won't go through, there are seven steps sure, in this process sure. because part is inner work and part is outer work, sure. meaning like the inner work is like the, who am I? What's the mindset mm -hmm. I have? The outer work is like, what behaviors do I have that, and how do they align with who I am on the inside. So what I, what I will say though, is that without going through all seven steps is that really recognizing the impact of mindset. So mindset is like, it's like the big filter for like, if I think that the world thinks that I'm not worthy, that's a mindset that I'm taking every piece of data from the world into me through the, this filter of unworthy. So you have to like be very clear about what mindset you want to cultivate and be vigilant in continuing to own that mindset, work through like, like sometimes it's like, cause you have to shift into like, no, I am, I am worthy. 
I am worthy because I'm a, a human. I, you know, I am loved it, loved by God. I am, I, I have a place on this earth. And so how can I use a mindset of worthiness, then align my beliefs with that? And then ultimately it's like getting really clear step by step of creating that alignment from the inside out. And then your actions need to align with the choice, like with who you are being. So if you are someone who is worthy, then it, it's one of the ways that rising gen, and this will be my last point on this, because one of one of the just an example of what it means to take that inner work and and um, externalize it is um, I will often talk to rising gen who say things like, I shouldn't go take that job because I don't actually need the money, but somebody else does. Right. And, and there's, I, I, I appreciate the heart in that. And one of the things that I guess that I want them to understand is, is that coming from a place of unworthiness? Like I'm not worthy. I don't want to put myself out there in a position where I'm going to have to get paid and get judged by my actions at work. Like what, what is that really coming from? And you have to understand what the root of that is before you understand like what that, whether that action is a right action or a, a misaligned action. Yeah, what you say makes so much sense. I mean, as I think about really one of the things in the book that really struck a chord, I mean, everything did, but in particular, the whole sense of identity. And as a rising generation, 20-something, early 30s, I mean, with this whole takeover thing happened, I was 26. I mean, that's I was right in the middle of that. And yes, I'd achieved some things. Yes, legacy probably played some role with Oxford, but I, you know, got good grades and you had to pass a competitive exam. And I did well at my college at Oxford and you know, Harvard MBA. That was, you know, the family helped that much there. So I was able to prove myself to myself. But for many, this is conflicting uh, seas of identity. Some may, as you write in the book, over-identify. And I have family members who are like that. It's like, oh, I'm a Fairfax, and which means a lot in Sydney. For me, I was at the other end of the spectrum. It's like, I, that's not that doesn't mean I'm better or worse than anybody else. I don't want my identity to be wrapped up in that. So I sort of fought that a bit. But just trying to find self-worth outside of your name, not feeling worthless because you're a Fairfax or Rockefeller, or not feeling like you're better than every human on the planet. Both extremes are, are not psychologically helpful uh, or healthy, but yep. just finding ways to, as you say very well in the book, to clear that inner clutter, find a sense of self-worth from within, or I guess from my perspective, I believe yeah, that we're all children of God and loved by God unconditionally. We all have inherent value and worth. That was sort of the core of my finding meaning and purpose um, and then beginning to find things I could do well to help others. So again, I want to make it all about my story here. But for me, and one can analogize it for others, you know, I've been on the, an elder at my local evangelical church for many years and before on at my kids' school board uh, for a long time. But uh, the pastor of my church in Annapolis asked me to give a 10-minute sermon illustration on what I went through and what I felt like I'd learned. And amazingly, so many people weeks and months after said, well, Warwick, your story really helped me. And I'm like, how many other former media moguls or rising generation people of wealth, like, you know, Annapolis is a reasonably, you know, okay place. But no, it was a cross-section of society. So that floored me if somehow what I went through 
I uh, could help others and, you know, the, my own crucible, that motivated me. So it took a number of years to write the book and what I do now with Beyond the Crucible. And it's very motivating. It's very uplifting because I feel like I'm using who I am and my story to help others. And mm-hmm. in its own way, it can be healing. And that's not a prescription for every rising generation pers- person, but there's a, a metaphor, if you will, uh, that understanding who you are separate than wealth and position and finding a way to contribute. Yeah, and then money. I mean, we give, we try to give generously, if not very generously, to things that we believe in. So we try to be responsible for what we we, we have. And But that inner work is so critical, especially mm-hmm. in your tw- 20s, early 30s. Figuring out who you are. Everybody has different baggage depending on the family they grow up in. But I guess as we kind of maybe, I don't know if we're quite ready to begin to land the plane, but we're kind of um, uh, <laughs> at least on the other side of half, the halfway line. For, for young people, maybe there's a rising generation person and maybe they're not multimillionaires, but even if you had a mom or dad who has an accounting firm, a law firm, or they're doctors, there's still pressures at a different levels. Mm-hmm. Who am I other than, you know, I'm the son or daughter of so-and-so who's well-known in my community. You don't have to be multimillionaires to have this pressure. What would some uh, helpful thoughts about finding out who you, your identity and you know making that contribution? I think we understand the challenges. What's what's ways to sort out the challenges? And I realize that's another big mega question, but <laughs> if yeah. there's a summary version of how you deal with that, some of that stuff. You know, one of the things, one of the best ways that I know to start to really understand who you are is to is to have the courage to try try things right like you you figure out what works and what doesn't work for you one of the things that is um in the research that i did for that that shows up in the book and it was the the mask when i did my master's work at um the university of pennsylvania in applied positive psychology the research project i did was to study exemplar rising generation family members so rising gen who are at the top end of development and i wanted to understand if there were specific character traits and skills that they maybe had in common that helped them get to the place where they they could say that they were thriving and that they had lives of meaning and purpose and one of the things that was common in those um, interviewees was a growth mindset. So growth mindset being the ability to to recognize that that your intelligence is is malleable, your your grit is malleable. Like we have the ability to grow and learn and and that we don't have a fixed amount of anything, right? That like we it's not like so people who have a fixed mindset get very stuck in not wanting to like Try like they don't want to do something where they might be shown a fool, right? Like, well, I don't want, I'm not going to like get too far out of my, over my skis because if I accidentally like shoot too high and try to grab for something that that's way up here and I fail, everybody's going to know I'm a fool where somebody that has a growth mindset will do that exact same thing. And if they stumble and fall, they'll go, wow, what did I learn from that? All right. What, what, what do I need to take from that to go? move into this next thing, right? So there's less fear around just trying things out and it being okay if, you know, it turns out like engineering wasn't your thing. All right, let's let's pivot. How do you take what you learned from what did work about that field and, and apply it to architecture or, right? Like there's, 
there's a lot to be said for the courage to try um, is a huge part of being able to form a strong connected identity. And that is in part the individual's work. Like each individual has to have that courage and, and parenting has a huge, can, can really help provide a leg up, right? If it, if, if there is a safe environment where when you're sitting around the dinner table, everybody shares like both a win and a challenge of the day. And it becomes normalized that difficult things happen to all of us and we can do hard things. Like we, we, we as a family have a culture that we are capable of taking on difficult things. Then kids internalize that and they become better at taking risks and saying like, okay, I'm going to try this out. I have a safe base. If I sort of, if I skin my knees, I have some place to go home and like be tended to before I go back out into the world. And that to me, I think is like a core thing. It's both individual and family culture that allows for, um, for kids across the economic demographic to figure out like, who am I? You know, just one of the things you just said here was, was, was so important is we've talked a lot about the rising generation and We've talked a lot about what you can do to find your own identity, you know, find some meaningful work that has purpose, begin to get self-confidence, realize your sense of self-worth is not wrapped up in uh, your family. It should be wrapped up in something external to that. All very good points, but I think what you write in the book and maybe one of the later chapters, maybe throughout, is just the role of parents, parents of rising generation, especially like I was somewhat fortunate despite all of the somewhat level of dysfunction in my family is by the fifth generation, my fat my father had gone up in a wealthy family. So both my parents were cognizant of not wanting to spoil me. So they went in with they weren't perfect. I mean, who is I'm not perfect either, but they didn't lavish expensive things on me. That wasn't going to happen. Uh, with my first car, I got this little Renault 5, which was a small uh, car back in the late 70s, early 80s in, in, in Europe because I was going to Oxford. I got half of that out of my own money for a part-time job I had. Well, that was really smart the way they organized that. I had trem- tremendous pride of being able to pay for half of that you know, little car myself. Right. Um, so where I'm going with this is with parents, it's just so important for parents not to give their kids uh, too much, to you know have a sense of work ethic, but a lot of people have work ethic in wealthy families, at least the people who make it. But a sense of humility, a sense of values. You write about this in the book. What are the values that we want to? I don't know, not transfer to our kids, but you know, what do we stand for? We've my wife and I have tried to do that in our own family, and just by modeling certain behaviors. One of the values that we had is I wanted to be around my kids' games. I wasn't going to be this absentee father the way some are. Every birthday when we, you know, we listeners have heard this story a million times, we would go around the table saying what do we most admire about his ever birthday it is. And, was, you know, just we've done that for a lot of years. My boys, who are more athletic and picked up my wife's jeans, she's more athletic, Every single car they ride, they say, Dad, you were at my tennis game, at my basketball. Every single birthday for, I can't tell you how many years. So I guess that admonition is, I know if you're very successful, you're probably really busy. You got to be there for your kids' activities. You got to, you know, because that matters. So anyway, I guess I've 
given a little mini sermon there, so forgive me. But I guess, do you have a few words for parents out there of the rising generation, of just things that they can do to, you know, at least make the rising generations easier uh, at life, so much easier than it than it could be? Yeah. Well, I I think on, you, you said it uh, you, you said it a little bit. In, in some ways, don't make it easier, right? Like, yeah. there's a difference between. I think one of the things that is um, an important distinction, and this isn't just for super affluent people. This this is for people who just have more than they need to get by. That that financially speaking, that when we as parents. Our best bet with our kids is to be thoughtful about what it is we're actually trying to parent for, because money can be a buffer. It can solve a lot of problems and it can make it it can solve problems that make our lives easier. Right. Like, oh, my gosh, my kid forgot his cleats at the at the field again. Like, you know what? Let's just buy him. We're going to buy him two pairs now and stick him in the closet. And let's like. But that makes my life easier. I can buy those really quick rather than say like, no, we're getting in the car and you're going to go down to the field and you're going to walk back and forth until you find, you find your shoes, right? Like there's a, like, there is a way that parenting, when you can, when you're thoughtful about parenting based on values, like who are we, right? You're the value you named was, was that you really wanted to be present for your kids, that there was a sense of like, nope, it's not just that they are appendages in my family, but I'm off doing this other thing. But like, no, I want to be actively a part of their lives. That's the most effective way to transmit values is to live them, right? Our, our kids pay attention to what we do, not what we say. And, and being aware that money is something that can um, create a buffering effect. So you have to be even more thoughtful about what it is you're trying to parent for, if you want kids that are gritty, and if you want kids that have a growth mindset, then then being really thoughtful about how and when do you use the resource you have because you can, and when do you like be really clear that that you're not going to do that, right? Your kids will know that you can. So it's even tougher to be. I think we have to. It's where you have to be really clean in your relationship with money to be able to say, you know what, honey, I I. I know that I could buy you those cleats. And the truth is, I think it's more important that you really understand the value of of taking care of your things. So we are going to take the time together to drive back over to the field and I'll help you look, but we're going to find those cleats. Right. That's a there's a distinction there that that kids understand. It's like, yeah, I could do that, but I'm not going to because there's something else that is more important. So, Warwick, do you have another question or another direction that you want to take things? Because I have an idea. No, you, you go right ahead. I want to make sure you yeah, get You go right ahead. All right. So, I have finally figured out what my role is in this conversation. And that is this. My role is to be the apple cart upsetter. <laughs> okay? That's my role in this conversation. So, I'm not going to take this time before the captain turns on the fasten seatbelts. I'm not going to take this time to ask our guest a question. I'm going to take this time to ask our guest to ask our host a question because we rarely get this we rarely get this opportunity where we have a guest in all seriousness who has expertise in your crucible in the in the beats of your crucible. So I'll ask you Kristen, is there something about Warwick's 
background story, what he's been through. Many times in this conversation, you've said you you found this in your research. Is there anything about his story, his journey, that you're curious about mm. as an expert in this field? Yeah. I'm curious, Work of all the many, many lessons that you've learned through your crucible experience, what is the most valuable one that you would most want your kids to internalize? So, boy, that's a great question. Is um, I guess my most important value is my faith, you know, my faith in Christ, so to speak. They all have a strong faith. Basically, that um, we have self-worth as human beings, whether you're rich or poor or whatever background, we all, every human has equal value. Being wealthy doesn't mean you're better than other people. It also doesn't mean you're worse. We are all of inherent value. I think most major religions, I believe, have some version of that. So that would probably be foundational. And we're put on this earth for a meaning and purpose. Part of the core of life is to find your own meaning and purpose. One of the things I let in very heavily, amongst other things, I'm a certified executive coach. And I have opinions on a lot of things, uh, but with my kids, I have pushed them from day one. I don't care what you do. I want you to do what you want to do. I want you to be happy and fulfilled. So I, I don't push them other than I want them to be who they're uniquely wired to be. And they're all doing very different things. And I'm the cheerleader. I will, I can't tell you how many mock interviews I've done in the last five, seven years. I've done tons <laughs> and tons. And I'm actually not bad at that because coaching and asking questions is one of my key skill sets. You know, what are your strengths and weaknesses? You know, what can you contribute in this job? All that kind of thing. So I guess the fact we all have inherent value, at least from my faith perspective, we're all put on this earth to have meaning and purpose. Um, you know, I do try and live what I believe, uh, try to have a humble attitude, not think that I'm better than other people. And uh, I don't know, somehow yeah, they're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but they, they are living those values. They are people of faith. They are humble. They have a very good work ethic. They're amazing people. Mm -hmm. So the highest compliment I could give on my kids, I'm not saying it's all me or, or my wife, but uh, you know, it's their lives, is that, you know, there's a lot in this book that was helpful to me and affirming, frankly, because I'm in a pretty good place, relatively speaking. But for my kids, it's like, well, that's interesting, but I didn't grow up with these challenges of identity and who am I and, and confusion and money. And they know that we're wealthy. They know our situation, broadly speaking. They, they're not people that you know, are terrified by money, nor do they feel like they're owned by it. They have a, they have a very healthy relationship. So it just blows my mind. So I don't know. The highest compliment I could pay them is that a lot that's in this book that's helpful to me is not as relevant to them. And it's not a put down of your book at all. So don't take this as a diss. I say on to YouTube, <laughs> you and your wife and and the incredible beings that you've uh, that you have given them the room to to become. Well, I guess because of the way I grew up, it was almost like a sacred cause that I wanted my kids to grow up differently than I did. I wanted to break the, not the curse, but the whole five generation, you know, Fairfax, and you got to be, you know, live 
you know, in light of some superhero founder. I mean, you know, when you have, I know we need to land the plane here, but when you have the founder, of course, there's a book that was written on him. He wasn't just a successful businessman. He was an elder at his church. He was a wonderful husband, great father. His employees loved him. When he died, they said, his employees said, we've lost a kind and valued employer. There were no worker rights laws in the 1800s. So it took about the bar. He wasn't just a successful businessman. He was an incredible human being. It, the bar was as high as you could possibly get. But yet now it's like, I don't know, I can't emulate him in his business, but if I could just be the kind of man he was in terms of character and faith and how he treated other human beings. It's not a competition. I'd be okay with 10% of the way he was. I'd be fine with that. So I don't know if, if that at all answers your question. <laughs> Hopefully it answers some, some of it. So yeah, well, and it, back to you, Gary. It fulfilled, it fulfilled exactly <laughs> what I was trying to do. I have definitely upset the apple cart. So I'm about to go pick up the apples. Uh, but before I go pick up the apples, Kristen, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the chance to let listeners know how they can find out more about you and your services and what you do. So how can they find you online? And then we'll kick it back to Warwick to ask a final question. Thank you. Um, yeah, my so I'm at my... Um, Private practice is Illumination 360, so I-L-L-U-M-I-N-A-T-I-O-N 360.com. And that's where most, like all my podcasts and articles and, and publications are, are housed there. Um, I also am most active on LinkedIn, and that's just Kristen Kepler, K-E-F-F-E-L-E-R, um, and would love to, to get to be a part of any conversations that, that these listeners um, are interested in. So thank you for having me. Warwick, the last word, well, not the last word, because Kristen will answer uh, the question, <laughs> but the last question is yours, as always. Yeah. I mean, we often ask this question, so I'll try and apply it to this particular conversation. There may be a young person, a rising generation's 20s up to early 30s. This may seem like the worst day they might have over-identify with money, under-identify, they may be ashamed, embarrassed. I don't even know if my friends like me for myself. Uh, I can't find anything to do that's like worthwhile. I'm like, I have no drive, no ambition. I'm just listless. I'm depressed. Counseling doesn't seem to help me. At least maybe I don't let it help me. There may be some rising generation that today may be, I don't know if it's their worst day, they may be in a bad, confused somewhat despondent place saying, what is my role in the world? I'm just this small cog in this big machine. I'll never live up to my parents' expectations. And, you know, why bother? Well, I mean, why bother? It's all too hard. I'm, I'm just going to give up on life. I'm just going to check out. Maybe I'll sit on the beach for the next 50 years. And I don't know, better than nothing. What would a word of hope be for maybe for that rising generation that maybe today's not a great day? Maybe they're in a pretty bad place. I know it's a big question, but at least what is just what would a, a grain of hope or a ray of hope, if you will, you could give to that rising generation person? I think I would, one, I I would say we all are worthy. There's a unique gift that every single one of us is here to give. And, you know, I think one of the greatest sadnesses is, is for someone to go through their life and not not really even scratch the surface of what that is. And it takes, it can take the courage of a lion to be willing to go, to go lean into yourself enough to know yourself enough to tap into that unique gift. 
And yet it is there like a little flame. Every single one of us has it. And, and it may feel like it is so small that, that you can't even tend, you can't feel it. But the more you actually let a little light, a little oxygen, a little fuel in there, the more that that flame grows and the easier it is to hear that small, still quiet voice that, that is guiding you to the next right step. And that's all any of us needs to do is like tune in enough to know what the next right step is. And um, I think that there is, so, so that would, that would be the, the sort of message of hope is like, it's there, like that, that little flame is there. And, and ultimately the, the goal doesn't have to be to go do something massively significant in the world. It is good enough to, to figure out how to, to be someone who is showing up with that light and, and that spreads to people you know, in, in all sorts of ways that, that become part of a virtuous cycle that when you give out, you get fed back to, and, um, takes a little bit of courage, but it's possible. And the last thing I would say is every single one of us has at least one experience we can probably lean on from some time. It may be in childhood or teenagehood when we know that we really showed up as our best and under, and being able to lean into and, and uncover Times that we have already experienced that can be great fuel when we're at moments of, of feeling very desperate that it's not there. I have been in the communications business long enough, listener, to know when the last words have been spoken on a subject and Kristen just spoke it. So until the next time we are together, I'm going to steal a couple of the adjectives that Kristen uses in uh, describing her business and in saying this, we know that your crucibles are real and messy, but we also know this, and Warwick's talked about it and, and Kristen's talked about it. They're not the end of your story. You can learn the lessons of those crucibles. You can apply the lessons of those crucibles. And when you do, you can write the next chapter in your uh, story, which can be the best chapter in your story, because where that chapter will lead to as you walk out that journey is to a life of significance. enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start? Our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.